0: Day three with Russell Brand. See it first on Rumble. I am now honoured to introduce so-called journalist, that's the words of Congress, uh, writer of Racket News and America This Week on Substack and author of Griftopia, it's Matt Taibbi. Matt, thanks for coming on, mate. Of course. How are you doing, Russell? You know, just very good and just very positive about life, enjoying life. <laughs> got a lot of trust in our institutions, legacy media, got a lot of trust in that. Government, a lot of trust in that. Trust... At a record high, I would say, not in yeah, a faultless, <laughs> yeah. not in a yeah. fully immersive omni crisis, geopolitical nightmares everywhere you look, corruption, censorship everywhere. I mean, there's so much for us to discuss, but given that we've uh, just done an item using your journalism, uh, the, can we talk a little more, Matt, about Fauci's role in censoring the potential origins? of the last pandemic and i suppose significantly that cia whistleblower and like fauci's agency tour to shut down investigation
1: yeah so this this is a story that um you know they, they kind of it, it grew out of the twitter files a little bit we because uh, a lot of the focus of the twitter files was about suppression of covid related topics a number of people came forward and um michael schellenberger and i uh about six months ago, we started um, to hear about a, a whistleblower in the CIA uh, who was coming forward with a story that Anthony Fauci had, at least on a couple of occasions, come to the um, CIA's Weapons and Counterproliferation Center. I forget what the, exactly what the acronym is, but it was what they were using to study the origins of, uh, of COVID and gave a presentation uh, pushing the idea of uh, zoonotic origin um, on the CIA analysts. Later on, some six of the seven analysts at the CIA who had, were leaning towards lab origin uh, changed their minds um, before the uh, issuance of a final report. Uh, they were given uh, financial incentives by the agency to do that. Uh, there are a number of other stories that came out as a result of all this, but uh, he also went to the State Department and the White House was pushing this Proximal Origins of SARS-CoV-2 paper that we also had reported on that he was heavily involved with drafting, probably never disclosed it to any of those agencies. So. It looks like a pretty sophisticated, um, uh, energetic campaign to go through the intelligence agencies and uh, executive branch agencies and try to convince them to not look at the lab origin theory.
0: Pretty, this, if this is true, it seems to be the kind of corruption and hypocrisy that people that were judged to be conspiracy theorists very early in this process were offering. I I feel like pretty early on people were saying, how is the Wuhan Institute of Virology funded? It was not even possible, as obviously you know, to even talk about lab leak theory at the beginning. Does this, are you able, I I sort of feel like I know that you are from when we spoke, particularly at that censorship industrial complex event that we did, like able to look at this somewhat objectively or do you find yourself sort of recoiling in disgust or are you excited as an investigative journalist like, oh my God, this is actual information. Oh my God, it makes sense. What, What what does this do to you emotionally? I ask because this would seem to be the type of story that an investigative journalist will be excited by, that this is something that, that you can show an unraveling of like a, a, an almost a complete reversal of someone that's been presented as a hero, celebrated into a, an almost galling degree and sort of uncustomary un- degree, a degree that's actually bloody obvious that something was going on when you look at it now, that he was on the talk shows and the dancing syringes and all those kind of things. Makes you think this isn't a normal thing to happen. The media when the media does something that extreme whether it's pro someone or against someone possibly there's another agenda at play so like, there's a few questions I want to ask you does it excite you as an investigative journalist why don't we see that kind of investigative journalism taking place within the legacy media and what was your emotional reaction to it and finally within this little bunch of questions can you envisage that this will lead to any kind of criminal judicial consequences for Fauci
1: Uh, that's a good question well just quickly um um to go in order, I should admit that I was very taken in initially by, um, a lot of the propaganda about COVID. Uh, and I was reluctant to go anywhere near the topic because I didn't, I was a little bit afraid of, uh, aligning myself with sort of anti-vaccine activists. Um, even if I was saying something true, I didn't want that uh, impression out there. And when we started doing the Twitter files, um, I, Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger were much much more interested in the COVID aspect than I was. I was uh, trying to focus on the FBI intelligence aspect of it, mainly because I, you know, I wasn't sure what was true about the COVID uh, question. But we came to realize by the end of the project that the COVID uh, messaging thing was central to the worst corruption that we were looking at in the documents, um, mainly because what they were doing wasn't taking things that were false and eliminating them. They were taking things that were true uh, and intentionally removing them and actually coming up with a reason to remove true content. Uh, And that, that I think was terrible. And this led to this series of uh, stories, which I was excited about because, um, you know, I, I didn't have any particular feelings about Anthony Fauci. I was a little annoyed by his imperious demeanor uh, and his lecturing, um, you know, just as an outside observer. He seemed obnoxious to me. But when we got the documents showing his emails back and forth with the uh, scientists who did the original paper um, concluding that the, the virus uh, had a, a natural origin and saw how aggressively he was suppressing their natural reaction that this probably came from a lab or at least that they couldn't uh, rule that out. Um, seeing that in paper was very exciting because it's not a, we're we're not asserting it. We're just saying here, l- look at what he said. Look at, look at what they were they were doing. They they lied to you about what they thought. Um and that's always exciting as a as an investigative reporter is when you get proof of something um as opposed to having to rely on an anonymous source or something like that. Uh this latest thing with the whistleblower suggests something a little bit more sinister which is an active cover up of um you know investigations uh into this question And then, um, you know, as to the question of whether this will lead to criminal probes, I think it's possible because there is more to come out about uh, America's relationship to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the sharing of uh, scientific research, the possibility that some American scientists may have actually provided the technology to um, to help create this virus. Uh, none of that is proven, but I think it's out there, and there's, and you know, from what we hear, there's more stuff that's kind of come out. If it does, I think, yes, I think there will be probes. Um,
0: ah, that's and, pretty, that's interesting and somewhat exciting. So, so, then if there's a legitimate story and there's somewhat reliable evidence and sources available, um, part of my question there was why does the legacy media not spend any money time resources investigative endeavor on stories like this what does that tell us
1: I I mean it continues to astonish me that they're uninterested um or disinterested I forget what the right word is in this situation but you know from the very beginning COVID was a story that was reported uh in a very particular way, I think a lot of reporters decided what they felt or what they believed about certain topics based on what Donald Trump's reaction was. Mm. If Donald Trump suspected that there might have been um, lab origin or if you blame China, then the response was to go all the way in the other direction. Mm. If Donald Trump said he took hydroxychloroquine, then hydroxychloroquine absolutely had to be snake oil. There was no other way of reporting this because Anthony Fauci was presented as the kind of human counterpart to, to Donald Trump at the time as the alternative authority figure, um, he's been embraced. And I think there's a, an unwillingness to go near the topic because they feel that that's implicitly encouraging people towards Trumpism, but it's not. The, the two things are totally unrelated. The, the question, We still have an unresolved question of where this virus came from. They haven't. Answered that question. So until they do, don't we have to keep looking for it? I think we do, don't we?
0: Seems that it's being manoeuvred out of the agenda, and I feel that there's, and obviously not the first to make the remark that there's an emergent template where crises enter a very sort of strong narrative. Come accompanies the origin of the crisis. Anyone that uh, dissents is maligned, and it becomes very difficult. And then, well, the thing you described about you know to be sort of inquisitive or uh, to to oppose the narrative is become aligned with Trumpism. It's almost I feel that they are cr- creating that dynamic, like myself, over the last few years, I've gone from a position of thinking like, oh, Donald Trump, man, you se- seriously? And like then recognizing that there's a lot of people who see him as a sort of a real solution because of the berserker component, because he is an anomaly in the political space. Then like for me, that as it becomes slightly more sophisticated, I think, hang on a minute, if, if they don't like him as much as they don't like him, that... At least is something the estab- whatever's going on with this guy. The establishment don't want him in there up to all the way where I start to think he's all right. <laughs> you know, like and that's because because in the sense you're ex- you're maligned and marginalised and excluded from spaces like the thing that you said about how they have they defaulted to Fauci as a counterpoint because of some rolling eyes and because they had a sort of a neocon stooge as it's starting to appear sort of up there on the podium it's now we've now reached the point where you have to kind of the the space is becoming so fissured and fractured that new alliances were going to happen and I get at that moment i thought oh well that's the fault of the people that are reporting in this manner and refusing to investigate as a result of those assumptions the ones that you just outlined but perhaps it's a perhaps it's broader than that perhaps this is just the, the what these alliances are just going to occur because is authoritarianism versus the periphery and anti-authoritarianism and you're going to find yourself in new alliances what do you think it is which one of those
1: well i very much think it's it's the latter i mean i'm you know i'm working on a book now and looking into the origins of you know this anti-disinformation censorship complex and uh part of it comes from this uh political theory that was you know, it was derived by um, a German jurist, he was a Nazi jurist actually named Carl Schmitt, who one of his core political theories is that all politics, uh, liberal democracy is just window dressing. All politics is really about uh, sorting friends from foes. Um, and it's, it's all about the binary. It's who's on our side and who's on the other side. This came very much into play in, you know, after nine 11, are you with the terrorists or against them? And now it's sort of reflexively how we do everything. It's, um, are you on our side? Or are you on Putin's side? Are you on our side or are you on the side of the anti-vaxxers? Are you on our side or the side of the, the insurrectionists? And, uh, they're trying to eliminate those middle spaces, those shades of gray. And uh, that's been very effective. And it's also convinced people to, you know, turn the blinders on when it comes to looking at somebody like Anthony Fauci. In retrospect, we should have wondered right away about a guy who tells us that he lied to us uh, about something like masks for our own good. Um, You know, uh, that that's something that no journalist or scientist should ever be caught doing uh saying yeah i i told you a wrong fact but i had to like um we shouldn't let people off the hook for that uh but we did because he coded as somebody who was um a friend and not a foe and that's how the the, the media treated him i, I think that's the, the the core authoritarian distinction is between is authority and everybody else
0: Yes, you're right, and you can see how authoritarianism is advanced by this um, f- false oppositional perspective. You're either with the terrorists or you're against the terrorists. There is, like, in a way, what that creates is a, a, a conversational framing that is, in its nature, opposed to something that I think might be quite fundamental. The decentralization of power, the demonopolization of powerful big tech entities, the prohibition of the overreach of the state, the foreclosure of the state's right to intervene in matters like how you raise your children or how you earn your money. By creating that sort of polarity, in the end, a sort of a a, a relatively balanced polarity, would almost on a mathematical level lead to two spaces for or against, yes, no. You know, like it, it is in it by its nature binary. So I can see why that has prevailed and how it serves authority, and also how we've experienced, even in this time that I've been, you know, intellectually, should we say, engaged in these spaces, uh, we've witnessed the. Inversion of meaning, like freedom, free speech is bad, free speech is hate speech, that talking about peace or advocating for peace is bad and disloyal. And how we've seen liberal uh, parties that were typically associated with advocacy for civil rights and uh, liberal attitudes becoming authoritarian. I suppose it's precisely because of this the, well, phenomenon you're describing. So yeah, you're, that book's going to be good. I reckon because you're t- t- like that, you can see how that will dynamically create that kind <laughs> Oops, of fissure. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it will work. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. I, 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 get that.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, 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 yeah, and that, and that's, that's how the algorithms work and in, in this censorship space, they're all designed to kind of reduce everybody to um, which side of the line are you on, you know, um, th- what they're an- analyzing is how do you respond to stimuli. If somebody comes out with a crazy opinion about X, are you on this side of that opinion or that side of the opinion? They're always analyzing the, the, the machines, the, the machine learning version of, of content moderation. That's what it does. It, it's it's designed to score you on a, on a spectrum of opinions. And... You know that's that's why things like this digital services act that you've got in europe now are so scary um because it's it's just creating an this intellectual dragnet over vast territories and separating people according to their opinions and um you know and telling us that some opinions are just illegal you know uh and others are Um, You know, everything else is okay, And that's a terrible, dangerous way of looking at things. And and it's totally contrary to my understanding of what Enlightenment government is.
0: From a free market perspective, it seems that what was and has been emerging in online spaces is the potential for global audiences to accrue topically or via subject. Ie, you know, Substack is an example. Um, Rumble, you know, the the phenomenon of Joe Rogan to take the sort of the most evident figure, like that. Some that you can create new markets, bypassing institutions. And I would say that that trend, unchecked, would continue and have connotations and could be extrapolated beyond media space and I would say into the administering of power ultimately why wouldn't it why would you not if you recognise oh I'm part of a community we can intercommunicate we can establish democracies oh I wonder how that would work if it was geographically localised I wonder that there was a tendency and a trend that had to be arrested and has been arrested and is being arrested I wanted to ask you about um, the EU's Digital Services Act the uh, recent uh, labelling of uh, X by Thierry Breton as a hub of disinformation and the uh, n- numerous comparable form uh, pieces of legislature, whether it's Canada's podcast bill, whatever they're calling that, the UK's online safety bill that sort of coincided with events that affected me personally, of course. And I, I wonder what you feel this is in effect. And of course, I wonder in particular how you feel about the the fact that they're often mobilized by things that almost anyone would agree with, hate speech, child pornography, nobody wants that, yes, but often they are matters for which there are already laws that don't require additional legislation or the foreclosure of free speech.
1: Right, and and that's always how they propagandize uh, repressive or authoritarian measures. They they, they start with something that um, everybody agrees with for whatever reason. That's why in America, I think it was you know the first uh, figure to be removed from the internet in a coordinated way, Alex Jones, was somebody who was really unpopular in many quarters. So people didn't protest the underlying issue, which is. You know, switching out one way of regulating speech, which was always litigation based and doing it by this other means, which was corporate behind closed doors, didn't involve courts or juries or anything like that. Um, That's scary. But all the laws that you're talking about um, have tremendous uh, implications for the ability of ordinary people to conduct democracy. I mean, these sort of top down measures. They imply um, that speech is dangerous, uh, and we found out. I mean, I think COVID is the primary example of, of of why this these kinds of um, laws uh, can be abused. Right, so. It, it, with COVID, one of the things that happened was you, you saw early on there were scientists like Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford and Martin Kulder from Harvard, uh, Sinatra Gupta from Oxford, um, who were suppressing the internet, not because they got anything wrong, not because they um, were inciting people or committing libel or doing anything that you would traditionally consider a crime, right, or, or a speech offense. But because they they were opposing a, a government policy, they were saying that they thought lockdowns were ineffective they thought that they were lockdowns were not scientifically indicated and they and the, the people who uh, run the trust and safety departments or the, the the censorship departments in these companies classified that as disinformation because it, it, it was information that produced the wrong behavior in people it aroused the wrong, political response so even though it's factually true it's narratively incorrect and that's what's so dangerous is that you have people with that kind of power deciding what is and is not appropriate content and they will lie you know they'll abuse those powers it's already been proven that's what's so scary I think
0: in a way it's it's already happening isn't it because sometimes when I'm talking about uh, what I believe to be an attempt to create systems of authority that are able to, because true authority, I suppose, by its nature would bypass democracy and some of the stories that we track and obviously that you track and investigate appear to be targeted and motivated towards the creation of systems that mean that regardless of what country you're in or r- regardless of whether or not what you're saying is true, there are new methods and modes of control being introduced, often under the auspices of safety, in order because the alternative would just be to announce that it's about control. We've been talking about what's been happening with banking in Canada and appears to be being legislated for and certainly is, is increasing. And I wondered, actually, because you know, um, Chris Christia Freeland, the sarcastically named deputy PM of uh, uh, of Canada, what, what what was your personal experience of her? If I if that's not a rude question.
1: So, Christia Freeland was a reporter. Um, she uh, wrote for the New Statesman, I believe the Financial Times, um, the, a number of a, a few other papers. She's obviously Canadian. Uh, but she was reporting from Russia uh, at the same time I was. There was a very small community of expats in Moscow in the 90s. And so we all knew one another. Uh, we were all familiar with one another. And uh, Christia was somebody with whom um, I disagreed a lot during the Yeltsin period. Uh, she had very positive views, for instance, about the the figures that we now call uh, oligarchs. Sometimes she did. Um, and, you know, there were, there were some columns that she wrote that even at the time, I remember raising an eyebrow about um, when uh, Putin first came to power. You can, you can go back and look at this. There was a column that she wrote talking about how uh, the West is falling in love with Russia again. Um, you know, the, the, the implication being that Putin was, you know, he he was a more respectable face. Uh, he was someone with whom we could do business, um, and you know, she had, she she had a reputation as somebody who who kind of t- toted the establishment line, the the American American foreign policy line on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, on Russia, which we didn't always agree with because there were, there were, you know, pretty dramatic consequences for people in Russia at the time. Uh, there was a, you know, a gutting of the freedom of the press. There were elimination of all kinds of public services and everybody, a lot of the Americans were cool with that. Um, and, um. You know, when she reappeared in this role uh, in Canada, I, all of my old friends from Russia, we've been all texting each other about this. It's, just, it's unbelievable. This, this stuff is, um, you know, the, the, the use of de- denying uh, banking services, uh, this invitation of Yaroslav Honka to, to uh, the um, Canadian parliament, um, it's hard for me to believe that, uh, Chrystia, who has a Ukrainian background and started her career out writing for Ukrainian papers, uh, didn't know uh, what was going on there. Um, so the, the excuse that the, this, this all caught them unawares, I'm just not sure about that. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, and, and she seems very aggressive in promoting the, the this, uh, very aggressive use of, uh, you know, denial of services to people who are on the wrong side of the informational landscape. And uh, that's very very concerning, you know, and it's totally contrary, again, to what traditional Western liberal liberal democratic values.
0: You said earlier that it it was using the ideas of Carl Schmitt that, Democracies, could, democracy itself, could be regarded as a kind of liberal window dressing for sort of binary systems for you know dividing friends from foes. And one of the things that I've been most struck by is how the aesthetic of liberalism, the rhetoric of liberalism, is so closely allied to authoritarianism, and Christian Freeland and Justin Trudeau and figures that. I feel like you know, no, ten years ago or fifteen years ago, I would have just thought oh, they seem nice, like the kind of people that you'd want run in a country, sort of modern looking really? and, <laughs> and sounding. And before long, they're like literally applauding Nazis. Now, I'd when we'd spoken about that, um, I mean, on our channel, assumed. Oh, that that was just a, an innocent mistake, and the idea that it that they potentially, but I do know that her own grandfather was part of a also a sort of I guess a amateur Nazi battalion out there, and that her grandfather's part of her grandfather's role was sort of seizing printing presses from like Jewish uh, like organizations and stuff. So what? You think it's... Well, I mean, that's just speculative, is it? Like, they, I mean, it does seem like a pretty mad accident. I assumed it was like a Jungian kind of deep, unconscious accident brought forth from the collective psyche that Canada, in all its liberal posing, somehow, like a fart, just reveal, re- revealed. Oh no, we're applauding a Nazi. Like it was, <laughs> but, but, but but you think it's sort of like almost potentially deliberate?
1: Well, uh, yeah. It, it, if it was a fart, that, that's that's got to be the that's one of the all-time loud ones, <laughs> I would say. Um, the, the I just don't believe. First of all, it's impossible to believe that they were not aware that this guy fought on the other side of a war, where 42,000 Canadians died, um, you know, most people are pretty, you know, I understand it was a long time ago and not everybody's read their World War II history, but if your country fought in a war, you have you, you tend to know who was on the other side of that uh, conflict. Um, Yes, there are some legitimate reasons. There, of course were legitimate reasons to fight against uh, against the Soviets, among other things, because they they had previously done a non-aggression pact with the Nazis. They're not exactly um, great actors, but in World War II, they were, you know by, by 1941 they were on our side, and um, and. These, this figure, Yaroslav Hunka, it was in the Waffen SS. I mean, it, 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 they had to have done some research on this, uh, and it's impossible for me to imagine that they they weren't they weren't at least aware that they were asking Parliament to cheer somebody who was fighting on the other side of their war. Um, so. The, the the Nazi element aside but the you add the Nazi element to that and that scene it looks like what uh you know uh, my podcast partner Walter Walter Kern and I call the soft opening for you know asking people to accept uh you know certain you know fascistic values I mean, I, I don't know how else to interpret that scene
0: <laughs> it's a difficult phenomena or at least event to interpret at all uh, a few things I'd love to run through with you firstly the emergence or at least announcement that RFK is going to run independently and the fact that a significant number of Americans say they would consider voting for an independent uh, candidate do you think that this is possible do you think it will alter the trajectory of the election do you think it could even alter the candidate that runs for either the democrat or republican party do you think it will change the discourse during this election do you think that he's going to get like super attacked from both sides now What what do you think will be the broad impact of RFK's candidacy, Matt? Uh,
1: I think, um, the candidacies of both RFK and Cornell West, um, are going to have a significant impact on, uh, the election. At least I think that's very possible. Um, Cornell West doesn't have to get that much support before he becomes a major factor in the race. Uh, for a variety of reasons. And it's the same thing with our RFK. If he starts getting even pulling the same numbers that he has been, you know, between 10 and 20 percent uh, of even the Democratic electorate, if you start adding the people who are among independents and Republicans who would consider voting for him, then we're getting into serious numbers. Now, the question is, will his candidacy hurt uh, Trump, who is the presumptive nominee more than Joe Biden, who is the presumptive Democratic nominee. I don't know. But, um, you know, there's a reason why the Democratic Party, actually, both of the the two established parties hate these kinds of candidates, because uh, Especially at a moment like this, when when uh, the, you know the the incumbent is so totally unappealing. I mean, he's clinically dead, basically, right? So, um, if, if given the option of voting for somebody who's still still alive and breathing and and able to uh, you know speak uh, in his own language, um, people will do that, you know. And and I, and I think both uh, RFK and West um, are, are going to going to become real factors.
0: that that i suppose at least is cause for some optimism another subject i wanted to of course touch upon is the escalating violence in the middle east i've noticed already that it's entering into an already difficult divided communicative space and this is almost the ultimate divisive issue even prior to cancel culture even prior to the kind of online tribalism that we see these days and the kind of self-censure and the censure of others this was an issue that was almost i don't know it appears to divide people like nothing else i can really think of what do you think's going to be the impact just in terms of journalism and discussing it and the, the calls for nuance and calls for peace when it comes to this horrific and brutal and difficult issue
1: First of all, I mean, it's just awful. Obviously, it's a a terrible story and, you know, it breaks your heart. But um, you know, one of the things that's really troubling about our this era of journalism and even social media communication is that there's relentless pressure on people to have uh, visible external symbols of uh, compliance or uh, support you know so anything from wearing masks to the ukraine flag emojis to even for some people the uh, american flag emojis or the black square or whatever it is um th- there's always this pressure to kind of reduce things to i'm on this side or i'm on that side and i hate you because you, you know you're on the other side of this and uh let's and let's come to those conclusions right away let's let's do that in the initial hours of the of the event um whereas you know in my experience uh, it, it can take years before you really can have strong opinions about a thing because uh, issues can be so complicated but but you're right this is the of all the issues that there are in the world like this, this is the one that um people feel most uh they they feel less tolerant of uh, the shades of gray in between and i I think that's that's dangerous because this is an immensely complicated issue and people on both sides of it would um uh, would gain from learning the perspective of the other side and they're not going to do that they're they're going to wall up i mean don't you think They're, they're they're going to move to one side or the other and just poor invective and venom on one another and that's only going to worsen the situation so when the only way out is to kind of reach some kind of mutual understanding, or um, and I don't know, I don't. Do you see that happening? I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. Not sure that I do.
0: Matt, I think it's been heavily exploited already. We looked at sort of the number of people in Congress because someone posted it on on X that have already, like during this period, invested in weapons manufacturers and energy companies. There's been rhetoric from sort of Nikki Haley and Lindsey Graham that sort of escalatory and allies this issue with increasing budgetary aid for ukraine v russia and prolonging that conflict and uh, what i feel is that uh, the world is not in a state to handle this this is this is the world cannot accommodate this now and it's happening and uh, i've just felt personally you know and particularly i suppose because i've I'm hardly in a position myself at the moment to try to sort of walk across a razor wire, across shark-infested waters. Like, oh, my God. Like, what are we – this is not what the world needed because it seems designed to defy any talk of solution. uh, uh, Like, it's that's how the the charge is so high. And obviously, you can – appreciate people that are directly involved or ideologically evolved or affiliated by some religious or national in terms of their deep identity and But elsewhere, it seems, when you see people in positions of power exploiting it, it makes, I suppose, I feel, well, at least that thematically is consistent with what's been happening. The exploitation of crisis is perhaps at least one area of this that we could safely discuss, amend and look for consensus. I wonder too, Matt, what you think about um, CNN's ongoing observable decline and the legacy media's decline uh, generally. And what do, you, what do you think about the Trusted News Initiative, a kind of organisation that have explicitly stated that their main goal now is to align with one another and oppose independent media, that there is explicit enmity towards independent media? And it appears that also that much of this legislation that we're discussing is advantageous to big tech, it's advantageous to, you know, to advantage to big tech to comply because of the potential penalties of non-compliance, of course. it's advantageous to government as a means to assert control, it's advantageous to the legacy media who don't explore the kind of ideas that independent media can?
1: Well, I mean, the, the things like the Trusted News Initiative, I mean, the, the irony that they will put the word trust in there. Why do uh, companies like CNN, why? Do, well, the New York Times doesn't have this problem exactly, but a lot of other legacy news outlets are experiencing catastrophic drops in audience while at the same time shows like yours and uh, Joe Rogan's and you know, lots of people on Substack are, are going the other direction. Why is that? And I think it's very simple, in, in, in especially in journalism, uh, it's a trust business uh, when audiences Uh, see that they've been betrayed and, you know, just take a a classic example of that, the WMD affair years ago, um, when there's a mistake and legacy media doesn't own up to the mistake, doesn't go back and have a reckoning for the mistake that they made, well, then people don't trust that outlet anymore. And that's when you see loss of audience. We've seen it go way down in recent years because there have been, there's been this, sort of endless parade of stories where they've been wrong about huge things. And not only that, they don't go back and fix it, right? Like, it's one thing to screw things up, but it's another thing to to sit there and say, like, you know, we didn't get that wrong. You know, and and try to just deliver the news again. Um, people see right through that, and so they're they're looking everywhere for alternative sources of uh, uh, of information. They fit when they find somebody like you. They trust you. Uh, you like you. You will admit when you get something wrong. That that, that builds a lot of trust with people. Um, and so what they're gonna to try to do now is they're gonna to try to legislate, they're gonna to try to force people to trust uh, these, uh, these institutions, but you cannot force trust. It's a human thing. It, there's only one way to do it and you have to build it up over time. Um, it, you know, it's, like, it's, it's like trying to force somebody to love you. Like you, you can't do that. Uh, there, there's no way to do it by fiat. Um, it's, it's a, it's a relationship and they've never understood that it's, it's a continual source of fascination to me that they don't understand those dynamics because it's so obvious that isn't it it seems to me
0: yeah because you talked earlier about the imperiousness of Anthony Fauci and this assumption of authority a kind of parental attitude the whole idea of censorship indicates how we are broadly regarded the inability to make decisions for yourself even even as they frame the arguments themselves this is for your safety that requires a, a particular dynamic that I think it's possible to significantly address now. I feel that much of the tension that's emerging now is because it's almost as if, whether it's technology, whether it's culture, whether it's something akin to evolution, there is a flow towards the potential to decentralize as much as the world is becoming one space because of the miracle of communications and the, the you know the, the immediacy of certain types of physical travel there is also the possibility for something a little more arcane it's possible now i envisage to live more closely to how we lived for tens of thousands of years whether that's some new instantiation of smaller tribes that are tolerant of one another that live federally democratically it's possible now you no longer need to aggregate to the scale that you did for, for the, in the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution or the technological revolution. Now the potential, once you remove the top strata, the potential for a fairer, better, more open, transparent democratic society with, of course, some kind of centralized government by consensus as transparent as possible is beginning to be a realistic possibility. And I feel that the machine is just marshalling every conceivable resource to resist the flow. And, and to do that, yeah, I suppose you do have, you can't do that with trust and with love and it's almost even to hear a journalist as credible as yourself use those terms we're just sort of that's been delegitimized and extracted from the conversation we're supposed to just respond to authority now we're supposed to how many times have we seen the bafflement of CNN you shouldn't be listening to them you should be listening to us stop listening to them and the lengths that they will go to to just remove opponents it's yeah, it's amazing to me. They're not you can't trust them. They've got a dog in the fight. They're funded in an extraordinary way. They're allied. Their, their function is to normalize and amplify the agenda of the powerful. They can't do anything else. Their economic model won't sustain any other version for them.
1: Yeah, that, yeah, that's all exactly right. And and they tell you openly, we don't trust you. you know, how is anybody supposed to respond to that? You know, to Go back to the Fauci example. Oh, yeah, I lied to you about the mask thing or I lied to you about how, how many people need to be vaccinated for to get herd immunity because it was for your own good. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gotten the shot or well, it, like you're telling me that you don't trust me with the, the the true information when CNN or whoever it is does a headline that says Trump falsely says false thing in, uh, in false news conference, what they're telling you is like, we, we don't trust you to draw the correct conclusion that this is false, right? Uh, and that used to be how the media operates, like the whole ethos of journalism. And again, I, I, I grew up around journalists my entire life. The ethos was, uh, we get the stuff, we, we gather it up, we satisfy ourselves that it's true, we put it out there and we trust you to do the right thing with it it's not our problem and that and it's a two-way street and and it was actually liberating for the journalists because it's it's a great thing to be able to say hey we're done our like our job is done here like we we did the thing that that we're charged with doing now you do your thing you make your your decisions as citizens and that's how democracy works is we trust each other we work with each other right and i i was always very inspired by that model i thought that was a beautiful thing you know and they've taken that away they've said we don't trust audiences anymore um we have to tell them what to think in addition to telling them Facts, but they're now they're not even really doing that anymore. So I don't know how. I think people can only respond to that uh, that approach in one way, which is to recoil from it, and that's that explains the, the drop in audience.
0: An empowered citizenry is dangerous, and that dynamic that you outlined—a dynamic where the media says, "Hey, we've done this research. You know, you make your own choices." It, it assumes power of the citizenry rather than that they are subjugated docile children and even the sort of style uh, or, or manner of journalism that you described i see how that organically happens in independent media space just really basically observing, oh yeah, that's how it's worked for us. We've gone, I remember there was a story once where a Facebook whistleblower came forward. So I was like, oh, this is brave. This Facebook whistleblower has come forward. And look, she's revealing these kind of practices within Facebook or whatever. And then all of the comments, were like you idiot they're using this <laughs> like they're going to use this to say we should censor people on Facebook and then when I revised that like I looked at it and I'm like oh my god yeah of course of course that's what this is and and we said oh course, sorry about that <laughs> we sort of believed that for what it was and we grew right. and we as you say gained their trust by being involved in a discourse and even the tone the tone and I think that there is something cultural and economic happening here that you still feel that let The legacy, the voice of the legacy media, it's either absent an anodyne in the case of much TV news, or in print media, presumptuously condescending and uh, prescriptive. And independent media don't have that, even if it's people that don't even, like, they very avowedly say, oh, I'm not a journalist like Joe Rogan or whatever. It's conversational or it's comedic or it's human or it's flawed or it's, oh, you might see things differently. And I can see how when I went to bloody Florida and, like, you know, to sort of visit Rumble and stuff, I was like, oh, I see now how the, the kind of libertarian right is more equipped to deal with this um set, these new sets of competing values, because for all, unless I'm being duped again, and it's God, it's not beyond me to be double duped, it seems like they're like, oh, you believe that, do you? Yeah, well, we don't care. We believe this. It sort of seems somehow more suitable than this kind of centralising, controlling, not even the kind of liberalism worthy of the name where it's like we're just going to oppose other interests on your behalf no that you work for those other interests yeah
1: yeah no absolutely and, the, and the, you're you're so right about the tone that the, the the tone change i i think that explains a, a lot of it by itself people don't like to be instructed you know they don't like that sergeant schultz like you must do this you know like uh and the tone was once very different we we were trained the prose style of uh sort of ordinary uh, mainstream journalism if we were not completely sure about something we always threw in allegedly reportedly um we always tried to refer back to this person said that It this is coming from them. Right. Um, And the whole idea there was we didn't want to make representations to the audience that that this is what you should think. This is what we think. And you should think this, too. Uh, It's here's the information. Sometimes we're absolutely sure about it. Sometimes we're not. But you make of it what you will it's putting it in their hands and and even from from a tone standpoint it's that sort of gentler presentation that i think people are very receptive to i mean that's been shown it's starting to come back a little bit in in these independent media spaces as you say sometimes it's comedy sometimes it's conversation but there's always this kind of respectful uh, thing it's not it's not people being preached to and they it, it's just you you know as, as a performer if you went out as a, as a comedian and just went up there and said hey everybody laugh um that's not gonna work you know it, you, you got to convince people it's rhetoric yes and uh you know
0: you have to persuade you have to persuade people you have to make this is the proposal do you are you participate there's no force involved It's a matter of like this is the invitation this is the offering do you want it yes or no it's up to you it's your decision it's your decision decision a consensus that's all that matters that's the only thing that matters it's yeah it's absurd how it's gotten this much out of control man but like, what was the other thing that I was thinking when you were saying that you have saying about the independent media you're saying how out of control that it's got um forgive me Matt because uh like there was something in there that I really wanted to pick up on one second um the tone oh no. yeah the libertarianism
1: um oh, no uh can go back through the uh, the allegedly, uh, you know, reportedly.
0: Oh yeah, that's what it is. It's like it's almost yeah. This is it. I've remembered. Thank you, man. Like that, they want online space to only be about commerce and control. But an inadvertent side effect of online spaces is that there was this utopian vision of the internet when it first came about. Oh my god, we can communicate. We can organise. Oh my god, the Arab Spring. Jesus, this could be done. By- oh, Napster. Holy shit, this is a tool of revolution. And quickly it's like, oh my god, this has to be colonised and tiled over fast mm. because it's a machine for chaos. And it makes me realise that what was previously expected of the citizenry was that you, are, you we're meant to be pacified. We're meant to be dosed we're meant to be just consumers. That's how we're spoken to. That's what our relationship is with the state and the state and its relationship to its own commercial and corporate partners. The idea that we might sort of become animated and awakened participants and like, well, I don't agree with that. And what about this? We could. It's like, you know, that book, Here Comes Everyone. The possibility for everyone to have an opinion that you're going to hear things you don't agree with like that, and the, 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 that that's so terrifying that you're going to hear opinions that you don't agree with, that the state has to stay Step in, and along with their partners in this in this new space of gargantuan entities, unprecedented power, unprecedented reach, which revealed, like from like, I don't know, 2004, whenever it was that Edward Snowden made them revelations, with along with Julian Assange. Whatever happened to that guy? Ever like since then, it's become evident that you can't rely on them to have that amount of power. And as it's sort of incrementally grown and the potential of it has grown, it's like it's now having to be sort of counterbalanced so that people cannot use this to become awakened and connected.
1: And empowered, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, if you, if you go back to the 80s when Noam Chomsky was writing about this, his whole theory was, It was enough back then because the sources of media were sparse enough that you could just define the acceptable boundaries of thought. So uh, to the extreme left, there was, you know, maybe we shouldn't have gone into Vietnam uh, because... Um, ultimately it didn't help. Our motives were good, but ultimately it didn't help. Where and the extreme, right? Was we could have, we, sh- we should have kept fighting forever and, you know, whatever. That's a pretty narrow range of thinking. There was no America committed war crimes. There was none of that stuff. As long as you define the boundaries that way, people tended to stay in there and they did, they didn't, you know, stray into all these places, the internet comes along. Suddenly people are able to go and investigate all this, this stuff. And now things are completely out of control. You, there, there's no to find, you know, sort of narrow highway of of thinking anymore. And that eventually expresses itself in things like Donald Trump getting elected or Brexit or things that are totally out of the, the realm of what they would consider acceptable. So now they're responding with um, yeah, sorry, that whole thing where you have freedom to go like reading stuff and, and all that, no, we're, we're not gonna have that. We're, we're, we're gonna massively uh, surveil this entire space. And um, if you have one wrong thought, you're gonna end up on a list somewhere and maybe you won't have, get to use a credit card in a year or whatever, <laughs> you know, that, it's gonna be that kind of a thing. And it, it's gonna work, uh, you know, oh, unfortunately.
0: Because ethnographically, anthropologically, and indeed, according to their own discourse, Diversity is a kind of inevitability of human beings. You will find new cultures emerging, new groups emerging. And it's extraordinary that the only sort of extremes that they are able to entertain pertain to individualism and individual identity, and that in itself prevents further organization and tends to, it looks like so far, facilitate further censorship, further authoritarianism. It t- used to weaponize more control because hate speech is always one of the, you know, like, like, like but Matt Schellenberger talks about a lot in his stuff around sort of censorship. Like, do you think generally speaking, people are more tolerant? Or do you think generally speaking, people are living together more harmoniously? And you know, aside from the obvious geopolitical challenges of right now, people do have an opportunity to chime along pretty well. People don't care about sexuality. People don't care about race. And yet somehow this is getting charged to a degree that it's not gonna improve the situation. And I don't believe they care about that. I don't believe that that's their motive. There's no demonstration of it anywhere else.
1: No, and they they, they, don't, they don't even good news. They don't want to report. I mean, there's so they're, there is so much good. That we've made a ton of progress in the West on all kinds of issues. We're much more tolerant of all sorts of things that we that we needed to you know get better on. You know, whether it's race. Understanding, being sympathetic to class issues, um, you know, trying to be more forgiving of people who, um, you know, have fallen behind, understanding that that certain people need attention and, you know, from the health bureaucracy, like uh, people are better about that stuff than they than they ever were in the past. And we're being told on on the country, no, no. there's more hate than ever. We're saturated with this malevolence and, and negativity. And as a result, uh, you, you should accept this top-down uh, sort of uh, expert class picking and choosing what you can see because that's going to make sure that this wave of destructive thinking that's out there in the, in the great uh, shark-like beast that is the general public um you know we, we that it has to be restrained and we're the only ones able to do it and i think it's just it's miserable you know i mean i'm i'm always struck at how americans can get along in almost any circumstance when it, when you're actually out there in real life yeah um i've seen this over and over and over again in bad situations from hurricane katrina to being even being in iraq um uh, people who have different views on things when times get tough they, they uh, they don't wall up and fight each other. They, they they cooperate, as people tend to do. And we're told the opposite, which is which is sad.
0: Matt, thank you so much for coming on Stay Free today. Thank you for making me feel optimistic, sometimes in spite of the evidence, sometimes using the evidence to show <laughs> me that things can improve, that new alliances can be made, that we can surmount significant obstacles, that we are still very much in this fight. Matt Taibbi, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks a lot, Russell. Take care.
0: You can follow Matt's work with Racket News on Substack and follow him on X at M-T-I-E-B. Well, that will be Matt Taibbi. Taibbi We'll post it in the thing. He's not M-T-I-E-B. That's not... I mean, we know his name. We've just been speaking to him all this time and what a tonic it is to speak to a genuine journalist. That's what investigative journalism looks like and that's what investigative journalism does. It looks at something that everyone assumes to be true. Wait a minute. Andy Fauci's a great guy. Hold on a second. And suddenly revelations and suddenly reality is different. How interesting what the legacy media investigate and what they don't investigate. How revealing? Whose side are they on? Is it their job to investigate? Or is it their job to amplify and normalise the agenda? of the powerful. You let us know in the chat in the comments. Remember, tomorrow we've been joined by Larry Sanger, co-founder of Wikipedia, who said that Wikipedia even, that sort of trusted resource of all of us, who among us doesn't write their entire show based on Wikipedia entries? I know we, no, we don't anymore because, as Larry Sanger says, it's propagandist and biased. If you want to be part of this movement, and we are going way, way, way beyond anything we imagine now, are here, On Rumble, we will describe to you the nature of the problem. There, on Locals, we are interested in the solution. On Stay Free with Russell Brown, we talk about the numerous ways that the world has gone awry, the corruption of the military industrial complex, the inefficacy of the state, the corruption of the legacy media. On Locals, What's it gonna be like next? How are we gonna reorganize? How are we gonna get out of this? As well as meditations, biblical readings, looking at scripture, religion, all the tools available to us, the five ways that are gonna change the world, whether it's cryptocurrency, new biomechanical technology, simply, alcane philosophy revivified. And I want to thank the people that are supporting us on Locals, and I want to urge you to join our community. Become an Awakened Wonder, if you can. And man, we'll find new ways of getting everybody on board. It's so important for you to support us now. You've, once the government gets involved and big tech demonetizes you, it's us now. This is it. You've seen from Matt Taibbi how important your support is, and I want to thank... Bonita08, thank you for being an awakened wonder. Marnie Howe, Mad Nick, Kay Kinsley1, W. 12 you are all so welcome here. Thank you for becoming an awakened wonder. Thank you for supporting our movement. Who knows what we can achieve together? Let's remain optimistic. Let's remain powerful. Let us remain above and beyond fear. But more important than that, let us remain free. Join us tomorrow, not for more of the same, but for more of the different. Until then, if you can, stay free. Switch in. switch on, switch on. switch switch on. May just switch Man, you switch it